an original tabloid queen. She inspired a nursery rhyme that's lived on for generations. But unlike Mary and that clingy lamb, its origins are way darker. So why will her story surprise you? This is no flame out, no fad, no flash in the pan. This is the Forgotten Famous. Here's your host, Matt Mitchell. Before spinning off into its own cable channel, A&E's biography profiled cultural luminaries like Mark Twain, JFK, and Vanilla Ice. In 1995, they kicked off an episode with their usual flair. More than a hundred years ago, a thoroughly respectable New England spinster was accused of a crime so heinous, so brazen, that even today the mere mention of her name elicits an involuntary shiver. And although I hate to disagree with a voice that resonant, today that same name elicits nothing at all. But in 1892, a savage crime in a sleepy mill town was making headlines coast to coast. But what made it so compelling? What could transform a 30-something Massachusetts nobody named Lizzie Borden into the most infamous woman alive? We need some answers. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The truth is, we love courtroom drama. And while movies and TV shows are great, there's nothing like the real thing. In the late 1970s, a spellbound America saw the first nationally televised trial as Ted Bundy, psychopathic serial killer slash charming law student, represented himself in court. And America stayed tuned as an all-star team of murder plaintiffs followed. The Menendez brothers, Jeffrey Dahmer, O.J. Simpson, the whole squad. But even these mega trials can get a little repetitive. Guys killing their parents, guys stabbing folks, guys eating people. They all started blending together. But there's one courtroom stereotype in particular that we never, ever get bored of. A woman accused. The deadly kind of girls gone wild. Is there truth to that proposition? Some kind of freaky sexual activity that went wrong? Accused of stabbing her ex-boyfriend almost 30 times and shooting him in the head. Is she deranged? That's... What is that? To discuss man who once dated Jody, Abe Abdelhadi, on the phone. You're looking at These days... Networks like CNN score big, covering the murder trials of ladies like Amanda Knox and Jody Arias. The legal carnival surrounding Casey Anthony delivered a 30% jump in their ratings, fueled by self-righteous scowl machine Nancy Grace. A verdict of not guilty. Let me just say, the devil is dancing tonight. The Oprah Winfrey Show will always be remembered for makeovers, book clubs, and car giveaways but two of the highest rated of its nearly 5,000 episodes? Jailhouse interviews with female murderers. We're here in front of the Central California Women's Facility. It's a prison that houses... You were pregnant at trial. Why did you get pregnant again? I was extremely lonely. I missed my kids desperately. I had just seen... And perhaps most memorable of all, a few months before O.J. got chased around L.A. in a white Bronco, all us fifth graders could talk about was Lorena Bobbitt, on trial for... Uh, cutting to the chase with her abusive husband. But a century before that, Lizzie Borden also found herself the hottest topic of conversation, launching our national captivation with circus trials and the female plaintiffs in their center ring. 
Lizzie's rise to infamy starts in Fall River, Massachusetts, with the untimely passing of her mother. And while I'm not sure if Lizzie was a suspect, since she was only two years old at the time, we'll just assume natural causes. Now, Lizzie's widowed dad, Andrew, was a man of some wealth and influence, with a reputation as kind of a miserly bummer. But this undertaker-turned-bank president couldn't go raising two daughters on his own, so he marries a woman named Abby Durfee Gray. With that sensual middle name and a face like Al Capone, the 37-year-old Abby was an age-appropriate partner, or what people then called an old spinster. But to be fair, life expectancy when they were born was literally 35, the same age Anne Hathaway and Lil Wayne are right now, so I'm not going to make that into a whole thing. Anyway, about 30 years go by, Lizzie lives her boring life, grows up, school, church, all that stuff. She's never a fan of her stepmom, Abby, but like, what girl likes her stepmom, right? Late one hot August morning, stepmom Abby is up in her bedroom when someone, potentially someone named Lizzie Borden, approaches her from behind and smashes her head in with an axe. Then, after her husband Andrew gets home a while later, that same someone gives his head the same treatment. It was not pretty. Here's A&E's biography again, quoting one of the investigating officers, a grizzled Civil War vet. I was surprised at the way Miss Lizzie carried herself, and I must say that I admire her nerve for a more horrible sight I never saw, and I have walked over a battlefield where thousands lay mangled and dead. It didn't take long for the good people of Fall River, those who knew Lizzie's disdain for her stepmom, to start drawing conclusions. She's brought in for an inquest and questioned about her whereabouts. They give her a hard time for a lack of composure, but if a judicial panel literally asked me, quote, did you see your father's eyeball hanging out? I probably wouldn't be super composed either. But dizzy Miss Lizzie here can't keep her story straight. She was at home when the murders took place, so they're like, hey, lady, what were you up to? She says she was ironing handkerchiefs, which was apparently a perfectly valid excuse for being busy in 1892. But wait, maybe she was looking for lead to make sinkers for a fishing trip. Or was it to fix a screen? Or was she eating fruit out in the barn? Or reading a magazine in the kitchen? It's so hard to remember. Police never found blood on any of Lizzie's clothes, but it would have been improper to rifle through a woman's garments, even during a crime scene investigation, so the search probably wasn't real thorough. And days later, while hanging out with a friend, Lizzie burns a dress she says got covered in paint. Totally not suspicious, right? In December, she's finally indicted and gets locked up for six months awaiting trial. You couldn't post bail on murder charges, and if she was found guilty, the mandatory sentence was hanging. Back in the summer heat, her trial finally kicks off, 10 months after the murders. But by then, her story was already making waves. Even if high society types found it outlandish for a woman to commit such a crime, our appetite for gory tabloid trash was as strong then as it is today, and newspapers feasted on Lizzie Borden's story. Borden, a girl of iron nerve and will. Cool as a cucumber. A millionaire murder mystery of Massachusetts. No signs of breaking down. Blood stains on the weapon. Police certain, no mistake. The discovery of the axe creates another sensation. 
This was a time of no movies, no TV, no radio. There was barely photography. The true, or kind of true, stories in the news were big business. Being a city's top paper made you enormously influential. And if you were an editor trying to increase circulation, any Lizzie Borden headline would do the trick. And I can understand why. Her trial had it all. A gruesome double murder, family drama, witness contradictions, and varsity-level surprise twists. At one point, the prosecution has him dig up the victim's bodies, boils off the flesh, and unveils the smashed-up skulls in the courtroom, causing Lizzie to pass out at the defense table. OJ's glove? That's Bush League, man! Stuff like that made headlines everywhere. Boston, New York, D.C., St. Paul, Omaha. Down in Brownsville, Texas, the Daily Herald had four front-page columns. The day her trial began, the first was just ads, and the other three were Lizzie, Lizzie, and more Lizzie. She was even the top story in Phoenix, back when it was one square mile, with a population of 5,000. The day of her arraignment, the San Francisco Morning Call began with this story, under the headline, Held for Murder. Lizzie is 32 years old, strong as a man, weighs 180 pounds, and has strength of will and mind that is remarkable. But under the weight of suspicion, she has broken down completely, the victim of a network of circumstantial evidence hard to overcome. This was the general feeling outside of Fall River. If your readers didn't know her, it was good business to portray her as a virtuous Christian woman, squaring off against a local police force with an axe to grind. A, a metaphorical axe, not like a murder weapon. They portrayed her opposition as outmatched, but the case's prosecutors were a future U.S. Attorney General and a future Supreme Court Justice. So it wasn't like Saul Goodman was leading the charge here. Oh, this one, she's a keeper. These prosecutors felt pretty good about their case. Placing her at the scene of the crime, check. Motive, check. No alibi. Well, unless you count, um, maybe I was eating fruit out in a sweltering barn, check. Plus, prosecutors had a couple aces up their sleeve. Ace number one. Lizzie's weird inquest testimony, where she couldn't say for certain where she was or what she was up to during the murders. Ace number two. A local pharmacist reports that Lizzie came by a store. She tried to buy some highly poisonous hydrogen cyanide, claiming she wanted to clean a piece of clothing with it, but he refused to sell it. The Bordens were axe-murdered the following day. Fortunately for Lizzie, Judge Justin Dewey along with the other two justices hearing the trial, ruled both the cyanide story and her inquest testimony inadmissible as evidence. Why, you ask? Well, since the Bordens weren't poisoned, the pharmacist's story, the one about the main suspect trying to buy poison the day before a double homicide, was ruled not worth including. And that inquest testimony? Well, like a bad episode of Law & Order, Dewey pointed out that Lizzie didn't have an attorney present and probably wasn't aware of her Fifth Amendment rights. Plus, to make matters worse, she was high as a kite. Lizzie was pretty shaken up after seeing her father murdered and or murdering him, so the family doctor was shooting her up with morphine for days leading up to the inquest, a fact he readily admitted could affect her memory and cause hallucinations. 
And although questioning a subject who is high on opioids wasn't standard police procedure, this was a time when Bayer, the company now known for aspirin, was marketing a non-addictive cough medicine under the no longer trademarked name heroin. So yeah, this wasn't medical science's proudest time period. Well, seems like some lucky breaks for Lizzie, right? Turns out, Lizzie had an ace up her sleeve too. She hired a turn-of-the-century legal eagle named George Robinson to lead her attorney dream team. And back when George was at his old job, governor of Massachusetts, he appointed Justin Dewey to the bench. What a coincidence! Left with just circumstantial evidence to go on, the prosecution was doomed. Before their deliberation, Judge Dewey charged the jury. Typically, this is just a reminder of their duty, like, hey, remember about reasonable doubt or whatever. But in a move that raised eyebrows of legal experts then and now, Dewey practically directed the jury to acquit Borden. And they were happy to oblige. Taking only a few minutes, they delivered a verdict of not guilty, ending a wild ride that inspired so many trials of the century to follow. The verdict kept Lizzie in the headlines. The New York Times was giddy, expressing the kind of big city snobbery they only imply now, calling the Fall River police vain, ignorant, untrained, and typical of the inept, stupid, muddle-headed police departments of towns that size. Back in Fall River, folks were less excited to see Lizzie a free woman. But even as a social pariah, she refused to leave. And despite potentially, maybe, probably, most likely killing him, she got her father's inheritance. She moved into a new house, one free of axe murders, in the fanciest part of town, finally living the life her tightwad dad had never allowed. And even if it meant being ostracized, she was happy. And if she'd lived 100 years later, I imagine she'd be even happier, playing the part of cable news reality star, turning her acquittal into a cottage industry. There was never another suspect for the murders, the Borden House became a tourist attraction, and people young and old knew her name for years. Her passing decades later made headlines, and she was buried right next to her parents, a fact I'm sure they'd have found hilarious. But while memories of her historic trial and acquittal eventually faded, a belief that she got away with murder proved her most enduring legacy. In fact, a nursery rhyme, popularized by newspapers and set to the tune of the most popular vaudeville song of the time, remained well-known for generations. Before John Denver joined the group, the Chad Mitchell trio even used it to intro a song about her, hitting the charts in 1961. Elizabeth Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when the job was nicely done, she gave her father 41. Yesterday in Old Fall River, Mr. Andrew Borden died And he got his daughter Lizzie on a charge of homicide Some folks say she didn't do it, and others say of course she did But they all agree Miss Lizzie B was a problem kind of kid And although the actual number of wax was closer to 30, when it comes to libelous nursery rhymes, who's counting, right? This is The Forgotten Famous. I'm Matt Mitchell, and I'll never forget you.